Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, is the U.S. past the worst days of dealing with the coronavirus? I'll speak with leading health care experts as they reflect on two years of the pandemic. And here's what we all know. Millions of people around the world have died from the virus. But we'll meet a local artist memorializing those lost through art. All those conversations coming up. But first, we're going to start with the weather. Yes, the National Weather Service is forecasting a mix of storms and low temperatures, which could bring some Get ready, snow to the region this weekend. A hazardous weather outlook is issued for parts of north and central Georgia. And Metro Atlanta forecasters say they're expecting showers and thunderstorms to move in later today with the possibility of strong wind gusts. Now, temperatures are expected to drop near freezing tonight, creating the potential for light snow overnight into the morning. Vaughn Smith is a forecaster with the National Weather Service and Peachtree Center. He says, look, don't get too excited about making snowballs. It's likely to be little or no accumulation in the Atlanta area. I mean, you might see a little bit on the streets, but temperatures Saturday will be getting up into the mid-30s, so that will be enough. And once the clouds clear out, the sun will be hitting the streets and, and melting the streets. So you still may see some on the grassy surfaces, but that'd really be about it for the metro area. Smith says the weather will get even colder Saturday night into Sunday, with temperatures in the high teens and low 20s. Oh, yes, they're back. The Atlanta Braves and the other Major League Baseball teams can now begin the season. The nearly 100-day lockout by the owners with the Players Union over a labor dispute has finally ended. Late Thursday, the Players Association accepted the owners' offer to salvage a 162-game season that will start April 7th. Training camps in Florida and Arizona will open Friday with players mandated to report by Sunday. Now, a freeze on a roster transaction was also dissolved, which now means players and teams can get back to negotiations. For Braves fans, that means please find a way to sign Freddie Freeman. And finally, tomorrow, Atlanta will honor and celebrate the 90th birthday of Andrew Young. Actually, celebrations have been taking place all week. Thursday, a peace walk started at Centennial Olympic Park, and Young, as he always has, offered words that are so desperately needed. I didn't want this to be a big rally. I wanted it to be a quiet, prayerful march for peace. Peace is more powerful the more it is silent. That does not mean you do nothing. But it means that we communicate with a universal spirit of peace that is the creator of heaven and earth, when we speak from within. And that ceremony ended with the unveiling of a new statute of Young at the Rodney Cook Senior Peace Park, located in Atlanta's Vine City neighborhood. Often referred to as one of the titans of the civil rights movement, Andrew Young, the first black U.N. ambassador and, of course, former mayor of Atlanta. And I know there have been many tributes to Andy Young and well-deserved, but for me, and allow me to take this host privilege, I've always loved hearing Andy Young sing. The following is from the March on Washington 50th anniversary celebration. Walking and talking with my mind, my mind it was staying on freedom. Walking and talking with my mind, stayed on freedom. Walking and talking with my mind, Stayed on freedom, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Now, 
50 years ago when we came here, we came from a battle. We came from a battle in Birmingham. But that was just a few months before, before Martin Luther King came through to speak of his dream. He had been through bombings, jailings, beatings. He had been snatched from his jailhouse cell in DeKalb County and put in chains and taken down to Reedsville Penitentiary in the middle of the night and thought it was going to be his last night on earth. He went through the battles of Albany and Birmingham and came out victorious. But we knew that the fight was just beginning. And we knew that we had a long, long way to go and this was just the start. Now he came here representing the Southern Christian Leadership Conference saying that we were going to redeem the soul of America from the triple evils of racism, war, and poverty. And you know, some years ago, I went over to Ambassador Young's office. We had a conversation about the passing of his friend and fellow activist, Maya Angelou. And as our conversation ended, what did he do? Andy Young gave this reflection. And so last night, uh, sometime during the night, she uh, lived up to the song, One Glad Morning, I'll Fly Away. I'll fly away, oh Lord, yes, I'll fly away. And then I thought of the other spiritual that we sing about this kind of time, that I'm going to sit at the welcome table. I'm going to sit at the welcome table one of these days. And I figured that Maya's gone to the welcome table with Martin and Mandela and her relatives, you know, and friends. And by and by, when the morning comes, all the saints of God will gather home. We'll tell the story how we overcome and we'll understand it better by and by. Thank you, Ambassador Young. I, to this day, that clip always gets me. Yes, thank you, and happy 90th born day from WABE to Ambassador Andy Young. And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Can you believe it? Two years ago today, March 11th, 2020, the World Health Organization held a press conference on the ongoing, what we then said was the COVID-19 situation. Dr. Tedros Adhanan Ghebreyesus, head of the WHO, said the outbreak was entering a new stage. In the past two weeks, the number of cases of COVID-19 outside China has increased 13-fold. And the number of affected countries has tripled. There are now more than 118,000 cases in 114 countries and 4,291 people have lost their lives. WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock and we're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Mm, The two years since that declaration have been, well, I've heard heard everything from unprecedented to extraordinary, unbelievable, stressful, and even illuminating. Millions of people lost around the world during wave after wave of this infection and the major upheavals of nearly every aspect of our lives. So much has changed and continues to change. Now, here's WHO's Dr. Tedros from earlier this week reflecting on where things actually stand today. This Friday marks two years since we said that the global spread of COVID-19 could be characterized as a pandemic. The reminder We made that assessment six weeks after we declared COVID-19 a global health emergency when there were fewer than 100 cases and no deaths outside China. Two years later, more than 6 million people have died. Although reported cases and deaths are declining globally and several countries have lifted restrictions, 
the pandemic is far from over and it will not be over anywhere until it's over everywhere. Many countries in Asia and the Pacific are facing surges of cases and deaths. The virus continues to evolve and we continue to face major obstacles in distributing vaccines, tests and treatments everywhere they are needed. Hmm. So let's talk about where we are and where we're going. We've convened our own roundtable of experts. Some names you know, you should know. If you haven't heard them, then you haven't been paying attention. First, Dr. Lynn Paxton is director of the Fulton Board of Health. Prior to that, she had an extensive career at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, an infectious disease expert at Emory University, where he's worked on everything from HIV to pandemic influenza. And Dr. Jacob Eichenberger, he's a pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Georgia in Augusta, and he's treated all range of health issues affecting our littlest ones. Thank you all for taking the time and joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be with you, Rose. You know, we heard what Dr. Tedros said. You know, when you think about what he says in terms of where we are now, that we're not, this pandemic will not be over anywhere until it's over everywhere. And Dr. Del Rio, I'll start with you. Um, how much truth is in that statement? Well, you know, these are all terms, epidemiological terms, pandemic, epidemic, endemic, and they all refer to different ways in which diseases are spreading. When an infectious disease spreading uh, into the population across different countries, we talk about a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And WHO doesn't declare a pandemic. They simply acknowledge that the characteristics of the disease are those of a pandemic infection. Uh, you know, we still are living through a pandemic of HIV even though we may not think about it on a daily basis, most people don't realize that there's still a major pandemic of tuberculosis and many other diseases. So I think, I think it simply means it's an acknowledgement that we have a significant health crisis. And you're absolutely right. And, and I think Dr. Tedros is absolutely right. This, this disease continues to spread and will be around with us. And we cannot consider ourselves to be done with it until we really have done what we need to do to actually control it globally. Dr. Paxton? Well, I have to completely agree. And, you know, one thing that I think we have learned a lot in the last two years. I mean, from what we knew two years ago about how to control the disease, what works, um, to what we know today, it's just like, you know, miles of, of difference. Um, what is concerning to me, though, is that, you know, with the lifting of restrictions that's taking place, you know, very actively here in the United States and in elsewhere, which is a good thing. I mean, I think that we do have to acknowledge that we've learned things. We know what, what's going on. We have a much better handle on things. What I happen to run into a lot now is that people are interpreting the lifting of restrictions with meaning that the, that means that there's no more risk. Mm -hmm. And that's been really quite difficult to deal with. And one thing I can say is that last month in Fulton County, we had 30 people who died of COVID and 27 of whom were unvaccinated. And so those are what I consider to be preventable deaths. And that could have happened and that, you know, might have been prevented if somebody, if they had been in, in, in fact vaccinated. But now we're seeing that our vaccination rate, rates are dropping. Uh, you go out into the world and you see, you know, in many indoor places, and I'm not saying this is necessarily wrong, but you're seeing, I, I very rarely see any, any, any masks. And so, I mean, I think that what we all have to keep in mind is that we're in kind of a great uh, position right now, and we hope that it will last, but there's really no guarantee because as doctor, um, as the head of WHO has said, you know, this is still going on in other places and it's not over until it's over. We live in Atlanta in an air, in an airline hub. And so what is it, you know, so we have millions of people coming through from different countries and from different uh, exposures. And so we always have to be somewhat vigilant. And that's what we do in public health is we are the people there to keep that vigil, to keep to look at, you know, how many cases we're having to see what's the strain on our health, on our, on our hospitals, or do we have beds? Do we have vents? Are we prepared for this? And then to make recommendations for actions based on those, on those things. So I want people to remember that, yes, we're in a good position right now, which we're all happy about, mm -hmm. but we have to remain ever vigilant. Dr. Eichenberger, what do you think? 
Yeah, I agree, um, especially with regard to how much we've learned through this pandemic. Dr. Paxton and Dr. Del Rio both have a little bit more experience um, than I do. I mean, I've been doing this for a little more, more than a decade, but um, to find out sort of how little we knew and um, how quickly the research has been done has been very impressive. Um, and, you know, Dr. Paxton talked about sort of these preventable deaths that um, it's the same story with pediatrics, and I'm certainly more of a local um, <clears throat> I'm dealing with the pandemic in a much more local um, environment, but I appreciate Dr. Del Rio and Dr. Paxson especially for sort of making these broader recommendations that I will base my decisions off of um, health department uh, data about stress on hospitals and number of new cases and things like that. So then let me go back. Let me start with you on this one, uh, Dr. Paxton, because one would say, so are you saying then that the biggest challenge right now is still getting folks more folks vaccinated that is the biggest challenge i would i would say yes it is and you know because the thing is is that you know when the when the vaccines first came out and you know i want to stress again so that everybody hears it once again that no steps were skipped in terms of getting these vaccines tested uh, in fact, it was just an extraordinary amount of money was put into into facilitating the process and, and giving guarantees and all that. But we had they were they were fully tested. In fact, there were more people enrolled in these COVID vaccine trials than had been enrolled in any other trial of drugs anywhere. So again, these were thoroughly vetted, but they came to market, you know, you know, very, you know, within a short period of time. And there were a lot of people who were a little bit, um, you know little leery of it, you know, because they're not used to the fact that we've made these technological advances. Now, what I found over the past, you know, um, year plus since the vaccines have been have been available is that uh, there's been a lot of people have seen other friends getting it and being fine and being protected. We've had a, a lot of people have gone ahead and gotten the vaccine who were previously hesitant to do that. However, surveys tell us that now we're getting to the point where we have that really hardcore approximately 16% of Georgians have said that they will under no circumstances ever get the vaccine. And a lot of that is related to the political partisanship that, you know, that is, we all know about that's going on in the mm -hmm. state, plus, you know, other, uh, other factors um, as, as well. So what we're dealing with now is we have like, you know, a hardcore group of people who we still need to reach because our data shows very, very, very clearly that it is still that the vaccines are extremely good at keeping people from getting sick and from being hospitalized and certainly from dying. And that is largely, as has been said by Dr. Walensky and by others, this is still a very much a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So we are pulling out all the stops to get people uh, vaccinated, um, you know, so that we can you know, reduce the numbers of people who are still dying in the hospital from COVID. Dr. Del Rio, look, today we have much more knowledge than we did two years ago, obviously, we about how to treat people with COVID-19. We have more tools to fight it, vaccines and, and antiviral treatments. But someone listening says, well, do we know all we need to know and have all the tools we need to bring this pandemic to a real end, or as Dr. Paxson said, you know, we have to reach these people. If you haven't reached these folks by now with all the knowledge that we know, how do we, how do we convince them? Well, Rose, I'm gonna start by going back to, to what I do most of my time before COVID, which was HIV. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked a lot about the HIV epidemic. And, you know, we've known this virus for many years and we've made a lot of advances scientifically and we, the, change dramatically the way people with HIV can live a normal life. But we still have not had a vaccine and there's still many things to be worked out in HIV, including how to cure individuals, how to develop a vaccine. So a lot of science is still happening. And this is 40 years into the HIV epidemic. Mm -hmm. uh, but in addition to that, even with the tools we have today, we can end HIV and there's a commitment to end HIV. But the biggest challenge is human behavior, right? It's implementation. It's how do we make the things we know and we apply it and we make it work? Because if we did all the things we know and we applied them to the population, we could make a lot more impact than what we currently are doing. And a lot of it is also related to what we call social determinants of health. So, you know, it's, it's poverty, is is lack of employment, is 
is racism, is many things, and now go forward and say the same thing is happening in COVID. So in other words, we have, except that it's been done very quickly, right on steroids. A lot of research was done, as Dr. Paxton said, well, this, if many things have not worked in this pandemic, but a lot of one thing that has worked really well is research. We have developed vaccines, we have developed treatments. They're not perfect. We need better vaccines, we need better treatments, but and they're being developed, but we're not yet at the end of finding the right treatments. But we have to get people to change a lot of the behaviors. And behavior means, you know, getting a vaccine, accepting that you could be uh, sick with it. I would tell you, I'm, I'm in the hospital. I'm still seeing people coming in with COVID. And as Dr. Paxton said, many of them still say, when you tell them they have COVID, many will say, I don't believe that's real. That virus doesn't exist. So, I, yeah. you know. so at the end of the day, we still need a, a lot of information. We have to get to keep people. We have a huge epidemic of misinformation. We have a lot of partisanship. So the challenges that we have sometimes are not scientific, mm -hmm. but are social and are, are, are political and are behavioral. And for that, we need to really all work together. This is going to take a long time to end. And it's not because we don't have tools right now. It's because we haven't been able to implement it the way we should. Dr. Eichenberger, before we go to break, I want to get your thoughts on this because your patients were the, the last population group to be approved for the vaccine. But did you, I'm asking, did you have conversations where you still had to try to convince or you just couldn't convince the parent to get the vaccine for that patient. Yeah, so that's happening all the time. And Dr. Paxton, Dr. Del Rio really said it beautifully. Um, I personally have, I guess, benefited from this pandemic in the sense that it has allowed me to throw off one of the misperceptions that I had, which was that if I just provide more data and better science um, at a parent and or or adults, that if I just give them more data and tell them how good our data is and how good the research is, that that is what will win someone over. I think this pandemic has um, shown us that there is um, a group of patients and families and caregivers who are not um, swayed by the science. Um, it's hard to understand for people trained in performing and reading the science. Um, there is a political and emotional, um, a fear-based reason. And so listening to your patients to see what the hurdle is, um, I wonder without the pandemic how long I would have continued trying to um, educate people based only on science. So I think this has improved um, sort of my communication skills. Um, but this is not new either. Um, mm -hmm. Dr. Del Rio compares it to HIV. For me, it's um, all the other vaccines. People have had fear of um, sort of vaccines, fear that things have been um, developed too quickly. Uh, every year with influenza, you know, parents know that we develop the influenza vaccine um, sort of mid-year based on the viruses that are uh, circulating in the southern hemisphere and so they worry that it's been rushed and untested but um, so part of this I've had experience in counseling um, but I think the pandemic is going to make my counseling more effective I hope mm. um, but as Dr. Paxton said some of this is just very very hard to reach patients and identify what their uh, misgivings their fears etc are. We'll pick up the conversation after this break. That's Dr. Jacob Eichenberger. I'm also joined by Dr. Carlos Del Rio and Dr. Lynn Paxton. We'll have more after this. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. I'm in conversation with Dr. Lynn Paxton, director of the Fulton Board of Health, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, infectious disease expert at Emory University, and Dr. Jacob Eichenberger, pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Georgia in Augusta. I want to go back to you, Dr. Eichenberger, because I'm, I'm curious, did you lose a patient that could have had the vaccine, but the parents did not? 
choose to, to get that um, patient vaccinated? So our hospital has had a couple unfortunate deaths um, from COVID. I think um, the ones we've had were all prior to FDA approval for any age of mm -hmm. children. Um, I've had a lot of very sick children from uh, this MISC, uh, this inflammatory syndrome associated with COVID. And there are a couple studies right now that do suggest that vaccination can reduce your risk of developing this, but um, we still don't know enough. And so um, our hospital had did have some deaths. It was prior to any sort of discussion about the preventable mm -hmm. um, aspect with vaccination. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I think we are seeing a lot of other illnesses and hospitalizations that are certainly preventable through vaccination. Thank you for that. The Biden administration has recently announced it wants to shift how the country handles this pandemic. And so President Biden, I think last week, talking about this in a State of the Union address. Take a listen. For more than two years, COVID has impacted every decision in our lives and the life of this nation. And I know you're tired, frustrated and exhausted. That doesn't even count the close to a million people who sit at a dining room table or a kitchen table and look at an empty chair because they lost somebody. But I also know this, because of the progress we've made, because of your resilience and the tools that we have been provided by this Congress, tonight I can say we're moving forward safely back to a no, norm, more normal routines. We've reached a new moment in the fight against COVID-19 where severe cases are down to a level not seen since July of last year. Just a few days ago, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention issued a new mask guidelines. Under the new guidelines, most Americans and most of the country can now go mask-free. And based on projections, and based on projections, more of the country will reach a point across that point across the next couple of weeks. And thanks to the progress we've made in the past year, COVID-19 no longer need control our lives. I know some are talking about living with COVID-19, but tonight I say that we never will just accept living with COVID-19. We'll continue to combat the virus as we do other diseases. And because this virus mutates and spreads, we have to stay on guard. So stay on guard. And at the same time, talking about now so many people can go maskless. And, and Dr. Del Rio, I want to go back to what you said, because that's a message, depending on whom you ask. Some people are like, OK, cool. Discard the mask. Others are still OK. So can you understand that message being a little bit mixed for folks? And that's part of the problem, too, for those folks who are, are unvaccinated. Well, Rose, I, I think that, you know, messages have and the use of tools has to change depending on what's happening out there, right? Mm -hmm. And I think a little bit about, let's say if you live in South Florida, having hurricane shutters that you install in your windows, if there's a hurricane coming, you put the shutters on. When the hurricane is gone, you take them down and you store them, but you don't throw them away because you may need them for the next hurricane. You know, right now we are having a period in which we're seeing low transmission of the virus after having a huge Omicron wave. That doesn't mean that we may not see another wave, but right now is the right time to say, well, we can go maskless. That doesn't mean that in two weeks, in two months, in, you know, in six months, we will be maybe seeing a new variant, a new wave, a new increase in cases, and therefore our decision to use a mask will change. I think what you're also seeing right now is a shift from public health sort of giving uh, recommendations and giving uh, mandates to really moving more into at a personal uh, decision making and more what I'd like to call, you know, personalized public health. In other words, mm -hmm. I may decide it's appropriate for me to wear a mask because I have, I'm older, I'm immunosuppressed, I have, I'm taking care of an immunosuppressed person at home. Uh, there may be many reasons why I, I want to take more protections than somebody, you know, a 20 year old, uh, you know, college student who has been vaccinated the chances of that person getting COVID and getting sick from COVID are extraordinarily low. And the chance of them dying of COVID are almost zero once they've been vaccinated. So that person may be able to do more things than somebody who is, you know, 60 year old and a renal transplant recipient. Now, do we, everybody needs to wear a mask because there's a couple of people out there that are, that need to be protected. I think, you know, at some point in time when there's a lot of transmission, that makes a lot of sense. But when there's not a lot of transmission, 
I think we need to take advantage of what's happening. So I think we need to also understand that 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 we need better access to care, because I think at the end of the day, testing is going to make a big difference. Mm -hmm. And also the use of antivirals and as antivirals are being more readily available, this is going to change. And that's why the president has proposed, you know, this sort of a test and, and, and treat strategy, which if we can get somebody tested quickly and get them on antivirals very quickly, I think we can dramatically change the perception of risk. It will be very different to think about, OK, I tested positive, but I can get a drug. I'll take that drug and, and my risk of getting very sick is going to decrease significantly. So things change. And as a result of that, the recommendations also change. Well, Dr. Pax, let me ask you this, because a listener just put up a tweet saying they couldn't believe that one of the guests said we're in a good space regarding the virus when considering that in some states, you know, we're still seeing deaths increase. So what does a good space look like? Then, Is it fair to yeah. say that we need to get to X, X number? Remember when the whole herd immunity, when all that conversation was going on and people kept saying, OK, when we reach herd immunity, everything's going to be great or whatever. What does it look like where we can say or should look like when we can say, all right, we're on the other side of this or are we already on the other side of this? Yeah, well, I don't think we're on the other side of it. And I'll explain that to me, good space is clearly a very relative term um, in terms of the fact that when we compare ourselves, the height of the epidemic was as was was very, very recently. It was in it was in it was in January mm -hmm. in which we in Fulton County were seeing close on 2000 new cases every single day. Our ICUs were filled. People were unable to go in and see their, see their doctors. They were unable to get other care that they'd had to postpone because of the ICUs and all that being, being filled. Now, what we have now in comparison to that is yesterday in Fulton County, we had 65 new cases reported to us, mm -hmm. contrasted to the nearly 2,000, nearly, you know, only less than two months ago. So that is a relative good space. Mm -hmm. However, that is still new cases that are coming in. And as I said before, we still had, you know, many people currently in the hospital and some dying. We're still getting reports every day mm -hmm. in Fulton County alone of anywhere from one to seven people dying from, from COVID. So on that note, Dr. Paxson, I'll stay with you as we wrap up. And each, I want each of you to answer this. Then what is the biggest lesson you hope is the takeaway these last few years have taught us? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, you know, that I've, I've learned a lot of lessons um, from this. One is to not take for granted that everyone is going to understand or agree with what, uh, you know, I consider to be, you know, you know, to, they're not going to understand with with data. Mm -hmm. They're not going to necessarily agree with what the science and especially in a situation like this, where the science keeps evolving and we keep learning more and more. So what I have learned is that not to consider the public as a great monolith, all of whom, if I can just give them enough data, and enough facts, they're going to understand they're going to do what I suggest. No, what I've learned is that we in public health, we have to be flexible. We always have to follow the science. We absolutely have to do that. Okay. But we have to realize who we're talking to, and we have to modify our messages for who's listening to us. Dr. Eichenberger? Yeah, thank you, Dr. Paxton. I agree that um, that's what the mistake I made. It sounds like you may have known it way before me, mm -hmm. but... Um, I think one of the things that I would want people to know is that the changing guidelines, the changing recommendations are not a result of bad science or lack of knowledge. It's a result of new knowledge and greater understanding. And that um, just as we continue learning, I think being receptive to um, changing recommendations, just as the situation changes, we use terms in medicine that don't mean what they mean literally. Um, I have very sick patients that on the day they're going home, I say, oh, my gosh, you look great. Um, they're still really sick. It's just they are much better than they were. Um, and so, you know, we, we say things in a relative way, but um, certainly allow us to clarify and ask us questions. And I think all of us here just really love to educate as part of our jobs. Um, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, I'll give you the last word. Well, Ross, I think there are several things. Number one, I think it, this has this epidemic has, has taught us humility, right? I think if two years ago we would have said, you know, a million Americans are going to be dead and, and you know, five million people globally, 
everybody would have think we were, we were crazy. So I think every time we try to predict, we say this is over, you know, we learned that we need to be humble and that we really don't know what's going to happen. Number two, I really think it has, again, emphasized the importance of, of social determinants of health and health inequalities. And longstanding health inequalities are not new with COVID. They're, they're here, they've been a long time, but COVID has really brought them to the front line. And I would hope that as we got out of COVID, we really finally address health inequities in our country because we cannot continue having health inequities in our country. We cannot continue having people have disparities. You know, African-Americans and Hispanics die at higher, much higher rates than, than whites. And we really need to be sure that we address that. And finally, it has shown us the value of science. Investing in science has paid off and we need to continue investing in science because this is not the last pandemic we're gonna live. Mm. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, infectious disease expert at Emory University, Dr. Lynn Paxton, director of the Fulton Board of Health, and Dr. Jacob Eichenberger, pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Georgia in Augusta. Thank you all for taking the time. As always, we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Close for Look continues here on 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. As we continue our look at where we are today, two years after the World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 outbreak a pandemic, we need to acknowledge the tremendous loss of life caused by this virus. The numbers, we know, are sobering. Earlier this week, the global death toll crossed the 6 million mark, and that figure well, it continues to grow. Here in the U.S., the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reveals more than 957,000 Americans have lost their lives. In Georgia, the numbers are a little bit over 30,000. Numbers that are large and hard to comprehend, we know, even though behind each one is years of a lived experience and untold ranks of friends and family members experiencing loss. Well, Leslie Murphy is trying to help people process all of that. She's an artist who lives in Lilburn, Georgia, and has been creating memorial portraits of people lost to COVID-19. And these aren't ordinary pictures. They are made entirely of text. And they're inspired by the words of friends and family members. Leslie joins me now. I'm also joined by Caitlin Doyle. She's a poet who's currently a visiting professor and writer-in-residence at Washington and Jefferson College in western Pennsylvania. You'll hear why she's joining us in just a moment. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Rose. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Caitlin, I'm going to start with you. Can you tell our listeners about Sean? Yes. My dad, Sean Doyle, was um, uh, unfortunately someone who passed due to the pandemic. And he was really just a remarkable person in every way. Um, he came over from Ireland in his 20s and he fought in Korea and then he moved to New York City. And it, when he was in New York, he started a bar called the White Horse Inn, which became a really popular hotspot for artists and writers. And he was himself an artist and writer and he was just dazzlingly brilliant and this is one of the reasons why when I saw what Leslie Murphy was doing with her artwork, I was so drawn to the possibility of having my own father's portrait made because she builds the images of the people involving words mm -hmm. that pertain to their lives. So words that you send her from friends, family, words that describe the person's biography, that describe their personality. And that's why it was such a, uh, uh, I was so compelled to contact Leslie when I saw what she was doing with the Memorial Portrait series. She put a call out on a grief group on Facebook for people who'd lost people to um, COVID. And I saw the incredible work and I just connected with it because I couldn't think of a better way to memorialize somebody like my dad, who was so into the arts and literature, than with a portrait made out of words. So... I sent along my a, a photo of my dad and a, a lot of words about his life. And she made this portrait that is so, we treasure it so much within my family. I have it on my walls. My family has copies of it on their walls as well. It's a beautiful memorial of him. And it also helped a lot with the grieving process because it was one of the first kind of tangible things that happened to mark him passing shortly after he passed. And Caitlin, your father, Sean, 
died in January of 2021. Um, his battle with the virus, was there a point where you all thought maybe he could overcome it, he, he would recover? Yes, there were a number of moments along the way when that seemed possible and even likely. The nature of having somebody in your family um, hospitalized with COVID is that there are are just constant ups and downs. There's constant um, changes that give you hope, such as their oxygen levels seeming to go up Mm -hmm. or their appetite seeming to return. And then the next day, their oxygen levels might crash again, and then you might be back in scary territory. So there was a lot of ups and downs. Uh, We all held out hope really right until the end. And he was intubated actually on my birthday on New Year's Eve And I think that was where the full reality of it hit. And so it's a strange process because you don't get to see them at all. Of course, at that point, nobody was being allowed to visit. This was before Mm -hmm. vaccines. So you're seeing them however you can in whatever spare moments that the hospital staff who were working incredibly hard and overworked can find moments to zoom uh, with him on a tablet they have. We were able to see him in short flashes. Some of the times he could barely talk because he would be getting oxygen. So it is a, is a very hard way to lose someone because of that lack of, of ability to be there in person. Mm. Leslie, this is where we bring you into the story, and I want to take a step back. How did you come to do this kind of work in the first place? I started making these portraits in earnest in um, 2017 as I was mourning the loss of my own father. Um, He had passed away as a result of complications from diabetes and I was working on a memorial word portrait of him to kind of process that loss and just kind of pouring everything I wanted to say both to him and about losing him into the work. And um, as I was working on his portrait, news of the Las Vegas shooting broke and I was just immediately struck by how many people were just suddenly going through the exact same gut-wrenching pain of losing a loved one that I was going through. And I decided then that I would start reaching out to um, people who had lost loved ones to gun violence to start offering to make um, memorial board portraits for them. And um, when COVID hit, just after months of watching the death toll climb and, and just feeling so helpless and anxious about all of it, I just really wanted to do something. So um, I decided to start reaching out to people who had lost loved ones to COVID. And I really just, I wanted to bring the the humanity back to the conversation about loss, Um, particularly when it's something like um, COVID deaths or gun Mm -hmm. violence, where it's just so huge and unrelenting. It just almost feels like this white noise of tragedy. So I really just wanted to call attention to the fact that these are actual people. They're not, it's not just numbers, real people. And where did you look to seek to even make this offer? I heard Caitlin mention, you know, the group, uh, online group. Is that where you started? Uh, Yeah, I just, I was on Facebook and I started looking for grief support groups and I contacted one of the group's admins and asked if I could, you know, reach out to people who might want to have portraits made for a series of artwork that I wanted to start. And I was immediately uh, overwhelmed by how many people wanted to have a portrait made. And right now I'm on my 28th COVID portrait. So I'm Mm -hmm. still doing them. And um, yeah, I I just wanted to give back. Um, I know how hard it is to go through that loss and also how helpful art making can be in uh, processing loss. I just wanted to share that with other people. I have to tell you, these are absolutely stunning and they tell a story. Caitlin, when you saw Sean's portrait for the first time? I was blown away by the 
had so many different reactions. I was blown away by the level of skill in it, um, how well done it is, how much it looks exactly like him and how the entire thing is built out of words, how if you stand away from it a fair enough distance, you can't necessarily tell. And then when you walk up, you see all the words. And I took time, I spent a lot of time reading them all. And that kind of connected me to what it was like writing them all when I sent them Leslie's way. And so I immediately knew when I saw it that this was something that honored him in remarkable ways because it was so well done and because it was so deeply personalized to him. And it actually in the background of the portrait that is made out of words about him, there's also words that he wrote in his own handwriting that I sent along to Leslie. So she incorporated that into the portrait. So really his his very essence and personality are in the portrait radiating out because you even have his handwriting in the background. Mm. So it, it's, um, it's a remarkable thing that she made from an artistic point of view. And then the just the level of personal meaning to it is is really hard to even put into words. Caitlin, there is perhaps no exact substitute for your father, for Sean, obviously. But is there some sense of processing through the grieving process, whatever that is? If, is there anything cathartic about having this this memorial, this portrait of your dad for you? It, it really is. Um, this is partially because one of the things that happens when you lose someone and lose someone in a way like this is that you're at sea as to figure out what words could do them justice, how to remember them in such a way that you're doing them justice. Um, and so when this with the incredible amount of uh, personal attention and detail to who he was and to what his life was and the words that pertain to his life came into my view when she had finished it. I, my breath was just knocked out of me because it felt like, wow, this was something that had allowed me to do justice to him in remembering him because of how well done it is and because of the content of it. So that had a lot of meaning for me because especially with a COVID death, without the kind of closure that you can have, um, say through memorial ceremony happening soon after, um, we weren't able to do one soon after. We had to wait a really long time before we were able to do one and I had Leslie's portrait long before there was our ability to do a memorial ceremony. So it it felt like I was having a way to memorialize him um, while we still couldn't have one. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when we did have the memorial for him, we blew up the, the picture that Leslie made and it was prominent at the memorial. Um, everybody just couldn't, couldn't believe it when they saw it. And so, yes, it was very cathartic in that sense. And also just knowing that it was something he would have loved so much matters a lot. And finally, Leslie, as we wrap up, I'll give you the last word on this. You heard what Caitlin said, um, the reaction. I imagine you received a lot of the same reaction from so many people. And what this means for you as, as an artist? Well, as an artist, it feels good to know that um, I'm making something for someone that's truly meaningful and it feels really fulfilling to um, try to help honor someone's memory who's passed and kind of hard to wrap my head around, but it's, it, it fills my cup, if that makes any sense. It's, it feels good to do nice things for people. And it's also kind of a way to honor my own parents um, and their memories by um, making work that reflects the values that they raised me with. And it feels good to know I'm, I'm setting a good example for my kids. And the thank you emails that I've gotten from some of these people have literally brought me to tears. And it's just been a very moving experience for me um, as an artist and just as a person. 
how much longer do you think you can or want to continue to do these? Um, well, I still have probably about 15 people who have been promised portraits. So I'm definitely going to finish up at least those. And then um, I might move on to something else. I might keep it going. But um, right now I'm not going to take any more requests just just so I can just finish what's on my plate and um, just kind of reassess whether or not I want to continue or move on to something else. Leslie Murphy is a local artist who's been memorializing people lost to COVID-19 through amazing, amazing work with these portraits. Caitlin Doyle lost her father, Sean, to COVID-19 in early 2021. He's one of the people featured in Leslie's work. We'll have a link, Leslie, to your wonderful work on our website. Thank you both for taking time. Thank you for sharing. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And again, we will have a link to those portraits, and you really should check them out. They are absolutely just stunning. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Janine Edder, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel are our other producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And of course, if you missed today's show, it's going to be online, wabe.org slash closerlook. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe wherever you like. By the way, have you checked out our new website? Please do so, wabe.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.